On this episode of On the Record, we delve into Mexico with owner Thomas Kelly, a restaurateur in the making. We discuss pivoting from the desk into a food truck, from a food truck into brick and mortar, and from brick and mortar into locations with a bar program. But let's let him tell it. This is On the Record. So, David Schillis calls you. You know each other for a while. Mm-hmm. He gives you a ring, and he says, I've got this crazy idea. Mm-hmm. There's a movement going on, and I think that we should be part of it. And he, he pitches to you, essentially, we got to start a food truck. Yeah, you summed it up pretty, pretty well there. Insanely, though, you have your own job going that has nothing to do with food. Two jobs, one that had something to do with food that I didn't get paid for, one that had nothing to do with food that I did get paid for, but yes. I was under the impression that you started doing the internships kind of in the culinary world. Uh, I guess we could quote unquote call it internship Mm -hmm. in the culinary world after he gave you the call because then you realized you had to set up and start getting knowledgeable about having a food truck. No, I was was, uh, kind of dipping my toes in in the restaurant world and the fine dining restaurant world for several years before we started Mexico. And now this is why the prompt came to you then. He knew that ahead of time already. You got it. And even more interestingly enough, David wasn't even in this business really at all. And he was somebody that was doing corporate sales. Yep. And he had a comfortable job. He was making like 150K a year, especially in 2010. That's very comfortable. Mm-hmm. And he just gave it all up to start a food truck. Yeah, it's kind of crazy when you put it that way, huh? So also like... 2010 food trucks weren't all over the place yet. The movie Chef hasn't come out yet. Right, right. You're ahead of things. And I could imagine that finding a food truck was probably a little bit harder back then because there weren't so many readily available from guys that maybe decided to have the same dream that just gave it up quickly. Oh, no. Dave found a, you know, basically hit eBay, found, or Craigslist, one of the two, probably, probably Craigslist, found a used... Uh, food truck. I think it was a barbecue truck. It was our first. Our second was just like an empty shell of a delivery truck, you know, an old UPS truck or whatever. Um, I think the first one was a barbecue truck up in Woodstock, New York. Just some, you know, some random dude that had a food truck barbecue business up in Woodstock, New York and drove up, bought it from him, drove it back down to New York City. Was that what you were looking for specifically? A truck that kind of had something available for you to do barbecue type things? No, we weren't. I mean, that was sort of you know, that is a part of the sort of a part of the concept. Um, but we figured out pretty quickly that we weren't going to be doing, I mean, you guys do this kind of food, so you know what's required in the kitchen. And we figured out pretty quickly that it was not going to be feasible to do that in the truck. Yeah, can you imagine having a giant smoker in the back corner just occupying space for hours I mean, on end while you're smoking go, whatever It would be going endlessly. No, which, correct. So, uh, listen, it's, it's possible. I, I, it's anything possible. is possible. I'm just, I'm just throwing it out there. It's no, possible. Sure. <laughs> so you've had a discussion with Dave. You said, you know, I'm, I'm learning some things in the back end of the kitchen here. I'm, I'm learning things I haven't known before. I'm seeing how people are running the restaurant a little bit. I see we're taking inventory and we've got recipes locked down. And your initial idea, or I should say ideas, where you formulate them together as, mm-hmm. as a partnership. We did. You say, what are we going to produce on this truck? Yeah, he, I think he had an idea to do empanadas, maybe, or something, some sort of singular item. And uh, this sort of like, you know, fusion of Mexican and barbecue was something I was cooking at home without intentionally, you know, making this hybrid of food. It was just sort of, I love barbecuing, smoking, grilling, 
and marrying those flavors of that kind of slow and low smoke and comfort food of the South with the like bigger, brighter, spicier flavor profiles of, um, you know, the Southwest U.S. and Mexico and other parts of Latin America. So that was like, I was like, you know, well, how can we do, what can we do that's going to be a little bit more unique than just doing a singular item? And with doing such, you start expanding a menu then in your head totally. ahead of time before you've got the truck, you're trying things out. Oh, yeah. Tasting right them. Yeah. Going you got to do right the R&D. Yeah. And at this time, were you maybe going around checking out other food trucks that existed? A little bit. But we, like you said, at that time, this is 2010. And so although, you know, these were big in other cities, like, I'm, you know, in L.A., certainly, where, you know, where Dave first got the idea for starting a food truck on the East Coast and maybe some other cities, but they really weren't, certainly not in New York. I mean, the trend really hadn't started. You didn't have this sort of new breed of food trucks that were a little bit more like creatively branded and food that was weird and fusions and um, a little bit more complex. You had a ton of great classic street food um, that was being produced on the trucks, but not this sort of new wave. And so there wasn't a lot to see. It, you know, which is part of the challenge of starting Mexico was like we didn't have, it wasn't really like, I mean, we certainly had no experience operating a food truck, but it was hard to even like model other people's operations from, you know, as a guest. You were essentially Tom Cruise and Braveheart coming over the mountain <laughs> a little bit ahead of the I curve. Like yes. And, but furthermore, too, you know, I, we say a lot of times, too, that it's almost a disservice on somebody that spent their whole life in one location working and they don't get to see how the other kitchens work. They don't get to see how the other bars work. They don't get to see all these pros that places have developed really well along with the cons and the areas that they fail at. Sure. So they can't take the best of all the worlds and kind of just put them together. And I, you know, coming onto a truck where now you kind of have limited experience too, though. Oh, very. Jumping Wait, like in these none. <laughs> kitchens. It's hard for you to maybe know some of the shortcuts that are taken throughout the world that work very well. But you also offer a unique advantage coming from doing online marketing and having a marketing background in itself. Yes. So it, I think it almost balance beam levels out where, you know, you, you're taking your strength in marketing, being able to market this truck. You built it beautifully. Did the truck ever change wraps over the course of time? Um, the branding, we, we maintained the same kind of core branding for the first two to three years, I believe. Um, and so we had like, you know, the, we, the second truck that we did had like, a, you know, just a different version of that same core branding. At what point do you decide that the branding needs to be tightened and get a, a facelift? Well, so to your point, I mean, that's, you know, I did not bring in, and Dave did neither, an operations background. So we made a lot of mistakes there. Um, the things that we, you know, that we love, I mean, we love Dave, you know, as a true entrepreneur loves that and was really excited about the growth and the, the grit of getting the business off the ground. And I loved marketing, as you pointed out, and, and food. And so those things we, we kind of got right, despite making a lot of operational challenges, which is probably the most important thing. Where, where were we early in that decade with, with marketing? I don't think we had hit the Instagram. We were, it was Twitter. It was Twitter yes, then, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it was Twitter. So yeah, so that, was, that stuff was super, was super helpful in like, building a brand early on. And we got a lot of that branding stuff right and i think we got some of the food stuff you know done well enough and uh and just made a lot of mistakes operationally which we had to clean up down the down the road 
I think that Twitter is such like a missed opportunity in some cases. And it's interesting because the financial world has FinTwit, which is like the subgenre of Twitter for all guys looking at charts out there and saying, these are my bets. This is where I think the stock yeah. market's going. And it's awesome. There's a huge community of those guys out there. And then I go look at the bar side of things and like, there's nobody really behind the bar and in the restaurant space that's heavily on Twitter and responding to everybody out there and having some type of community like referenced around the food community. Yeah, I agree. It seems like a, yeah, kind of a missed opportunity. I mean, I guess it's less visual obviously. So, you know, maybe that's why, um, but yeah, it, it is, it is probably a missed opportunity. Just overwhelming the, the number of, you know, social media channels that we have to keep track of these days. Well, at that point too, how do people find the truck? Well, that's what we use Twitter for. Yeah. So we were using Twitter for, to like, you know, broadcast our location every day, which was really fun, you know, because we were, we were moving around a lot and throughout New York City, mainly Manhattan and Brooklyn. And so we, you know, we tweet out our location, just like, you know, the classic scenes in, in Chef. Which came out after you were already doing this, yeah, by the way. Yeah. Let's double note that. Yes. <laughs> came out after we were already doing it. However, there was a model that had been established by like, you know, by Koji and some of these other like awesome, you know, food truck, like really, really early pioneers. How, how long did it take to convert the food truck once you found this up in Woodstock? Uh, the truck, I think Dave found the truck in like January or February of, well, maybe, yeah, February, like February, early, like it was Q1 2010, sometime in there. And then we were on the streets by like late July, early August. Okay, that's, that's pretty that's good. Fast. Yeah. Oh no, it was fast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we we got to get to market. We got this truck. Oh, we got to start like, getting yeah. money coming into the company here. Totally spazzing about that. Yeah, we were we were we were both like extremely hungry to get things up and going. I guess in the Northeast too, you have the weather to think about. So it's totally trumpy <laughs> season. That right? that so. particular summer, I'm sure we were like, <laughs> shit, we gotta get we gotta at least capture a month or two before we have to shut things down, which we ultimately didn't have to do, but we assumed we would. Well, how'd you discuss that hardship ahead of time, too? I mean, living up here, we know that, yeah, food trucks kind of disappear in the winter for the majority, not all of them. But Yeah, yeah I mean, well, so what ultimately happened is, I mean, I, we, well, we launched a catering company right away, not a catering separate company, but we, we launched like an arm of what we were doing at Mexique is, is a catering, like a traditional catering business and started building that up right away. And that was one of the reasons is because we figured that would like, you know, offset the loss of sales during the winter. Now, what ended up happening, especially at that time, there was like food trucks are so new and people were going like, we're just totally irrational about it. People were lining up in the middle of winter, like days like today where, you know, it's snowing and slushy and disgusting in, in the streets of New York City. And people are like, you know, crazy New Yorkers with this new cultural culinary phenomenon lining up around city yeah. blocks for it. It's crazy. Yeah. I, I know. We actually just discussed that on a previous podcast. And certainly enough, the fact that anybody in the city is willing to wait for food really shows a lot about your food specifically and the fact that this is new to them. Again, let's go back to what time this was in, uh, I, I guess, food truck world, right? 2010 just started. People are so excited to see this truck out here. They're not seeing a ton of them on the streets in New York. Yep. Was it easier to get permits at that point? No. It was not at yeah, all. Yeah, but I imagine it's harder. Yeah. Because no, there's no, no like, was, path for it. There was no path. The, the city of New York was not releasing any, even though the Trident hadn't exploded, to your point, the city of New York still wasn't releasing any new street vending permits, I think is what they're called. And so they were all black market. So it was not easy at all. We, we you know, this is, this was, again, Dave's department. He, like, you know, was, like, running around the streets of New York talking to 
other street vendors to find out if anyone was selling the permit. And then we ended up like, you know, in an empty commissary garage in the 50s all the way on the west side, um, handing some guy that we've met once before, you know, 10 grand as like a deposit, <laughs> you know, for a, for, that would hopefully result in a, a street vending permit. Yeah, we, I, I had heard, I remember hearing stories back then of like these hot dog carts is almost equal value to what they're doing on the, on the street is the permit itself of like being able to be in a certain spot totally. or something in the city. And yeah. you just cash out at some point on, on that particular spot. Exactly. Well, so ideally then the permit kind of holds its own value. You have to renew it every year though, no? Yeah, you have to renew it every year. Um, but yes, it does hold its own value. It's kind of like a, whatever, like a tax medallion or something like that. I would think that there was some type of fear also going into that too, where you're just starting out this business. All right, it's going to be 10K for this permit. Is this even a legit permit that we're buying from this guy in oh, this bar- back alley? It's like <laughs> Ocean's Eleven downstairs in the casino with a baseball bat, kind of just walking up with the money oh, here. Oh, 100% and- had no idea. I mean, literally brought cash to a empty, big, shady, empty garage on the west side of Manhattan and handed it to you know this this guy who um, who we never who we met once before. So you celebrate for drinks afterwards, I'm sure. After you get it, you know, yes. questionably celebrating. Yes. And how much time goes between you actually activating the truck from there? I'm assuming it was a legit permit, right? It was a legit permit, okay. thankfully. <laughs> that would probably would have been the end of you know the Mexican end story. To the Mexican story. Because um, we did not have a lot of money, at, at, you know, still don't, um, but didn't certainly didn't have a lot of money in those days to to start the business, and yeah, so that was, and then so we, I mean, that was one of the, you know, that was like pretty, pretty late in the process of getting the truck kind of finished and ready to get out there on the streets, so it was, you know, we were that was probably like you know midsummer and we were you know out in the streets selling tacos, you know, a month a month later probably. I was gonna say when you launched the truck, how many menu items were on this thing? Uh, six, three tacos, three sliders. And you prepped these out of commissary kitchen or out we of the did. truck? We, we did. We um, we got pretty creative in those early days, um, and I know you, you know you know something about that. And so we were we were getting creative, but like basically we were we were um, we were you know renting kitchen space from existing restaurants, and then and then eventually we found like a, a more proper commissary setup. But yeah, we had to cook it all. We were doing like final stages of prep in the truck, but pretty much everything else was being done off the truck. So my, my buddy just took over a contract at a yacht club up north from us a little bit. Yep. And we've had the discussion many a times where we said, what if there's not enough members to essentially be showing up to the dinners where you're essentially making your money, right? Yep. And what if not enough members show up and then you've got to pay your whole kitchen staff? And he goes, this thing's a wash. I'm using this as a commissary kitchen, essentially. That way I could prep everything for my food truck and my catering business. Really? So I'm not paying for the kitchen. Now it's my kitchen and anything I make on top, I make on top. If I finish flat, I finish flat. It doesn't really matter. That's great. So, I mean, similar to that idea where now you were renting a commissary kitchen for a little bit. So you're coming out a little bit more money to make some more money. But you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was this tricky thing because we, you know, it was, it was critical in allowing us to grow. But it also created this... Um, this hub which was kind of expensive you know and so we were you know we had a commissary we had to operate with you know that's where I spent my time and um and we had a kitchen team and we had um you know that's where we kind of had our corporate office and so we had I mean it wasn't a big team but we had a you know a small team that was growing and and so you know all of a sudden you you know it's it's helpful or at least it was in those days but you quickly have a pressure to like build more streams of revenue to support that 
kind of corporate commissary hub. Completely. And you're looking at the overhead that you've got to pay down. Yeah. Sure, you're looking at how much money the truck's actually making anyway. At that point in time where you just launched, you start hitting the street. How long are these lines that people are actually waiting on for the food here? Are they still kind I of mean, just literally small around? Lines? What's that? Are, when we hit are the streets? small lines at this point oh, when you just started? No, 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 no. Right off the bat, like lines around city blocks. Insane. And I don't even know. I mean, we, you know, I, I mean, it was one of these classic things. I mean, it was, you know, where like we, you know, tweeted our location. We didn't have any, I don't think we had any press to speak of. Although, although we probably were, you know, we were probably. I don't know, maybe Eater and Grub Street and a couple other like small online outlets, and then it just snowballed very quickly. But right, right off, I mean, New Yorkers were so curious about this that just having this like billboard on the streets resulted in lines around the block literally on day one. Which so, I, so how the, once you once you open the Twitter, how fast did you get like from zero followers to wherever you got? Like how I mean, it was exponential was it? growth within you know just within months. It's insane to just think about being in the right place, the right time, the right oh, visual stimulation, right? Oh, totally. I mean, it's 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 painful to think about in some ways because um, it wasn't too difficult. And like these days, you know, we just plateaued at some point. And these days we sit there and we're like creating all this content on Instagram and just starting TikTok late, whatever. Um, just investing a lot of time in in creating content for these, you know, for these mm-hmm. for these platforms. And it's like you know, the, the growth is, is, I wouldn't call it exponential. Think about early on to where all these social media channels, like I still can't wrap my head around TikTok. I give you yeah. all the props and praise for being able to get out there. Are you on, are you on doing the it. TikTok? Yeah, I mean, I say the TikTok. The, yeah, TikTok, I know, exactly. Uh, you saved of, yourself. Couple, I know, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm right there with you. I mean, if you looked at our, my TikTok account, um, it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm blatantly aging myself on it. But yeah, we are. I mean, we just, we just, uh, kind of started literally in the last like you know month started actually experimenting with that I'm it's gonna, a fun I'm, platform i mean it's a little bit more i'm gonna have to follow you i've been trying yeah, to figure out do. what, what use, works you'll be like our you know 11th follower there you go <laughs> i'm uh, up to a hun- we're up to 100 oh nice yeah. Well, you got you got us beat <laughs> so it's it's funny though because you know at this time and we've we discuss it all the time the cameras on the phones weren't up to par yet. Yeah. And, you know, this day in Facebook in 2009, all you see is a pixelated picture. And yep. you're like, what was I even shooting at that point? Does Do other people understand what I was shooting? Yeah. So as the time starts going on and these different platforms start developing, it, this was still a job for an intern to do, to tweet things out, to be on Facebook, until these huge corporations started realizing holy shit, this is the face of our brand now. And right. we've got this 16-year-old sure. kid that has zero experience in the world sure. operating and maybe even hitting a party on Friday, Saturday night and hitting the wrong button, sure. thinking that it's going to their own Twitter or Instagram. It's kind of wild when you put it like that. Literally, that's like a realistic thing. People didn't realize, no, this happened. just make that kid do the Instagram or whatever. And then yeah. all of a sudden, that's that kid is the most influential person yeah, companies. Well, it resulted in tons of PR disasters throughout a lot of companies in this time period, and that's yep. when the realization started happening that, oh, this is something serious, and we have to start building on it. And for where you were just able to tweet out what you were doing back in the day, like you just said, how much time do you spend doing content? I'm sure it's a, a t- partial whole day. Like, a do lot. you jam out days at a time? Mm-hmm. A lot, especially over the last year, as things have become increasingly digital. We're sort of like, you know, our industry is living in, a, in, in more of a digital world. 
um, you know, with people ordering online for takeout and delivery more and, um, and trying to communicate with people that way. Yeah, we're, we're, we're spending a lot of time, a lot of time creating content. You utilize one of my favorite photo angles of all time, and that's top down, centered perfectly. The symmetry is beautiful. And a lot of your photos do actually resemble that. The videos that you take are well lit. So I'm sure this is coming from your marketing and online background too, though, where you understand these things. You understand putting the different textures together that make certain things pop. Yeah. Or photos pop or dishes pop, whatever it is. And, you know, there's a lot of guys out there that run their social media that don't understand how the entire portfolio of photos look when you're scrolling down it. Sure. And yours all look like they come from the same camera, the same idea, the same person. It doesn't change anything. And is that all you that's doing these or? It's a combination of me and we have a we have a marketing person um, who's awesome. And I do, um, she does mostly Mexican stuff. I do my own stuff on our channel, which we sort of, you know, my, my online presence exists like almost entirely because of and to promote Mexico. Yeah. Um, so we look at that as like, you know, part of the ecosystem. Our, you know, myself and our other team members and, um, you know, guest influencers, Mexico's own channels. And so it's all sort of like part of this, you know, ecosystem of digital communication. So in the first year with the food truck, you did like $500,000 on the truck. Shit, we got something going on here. This is real. Mm -hmm. And right before I head into this, I wanted to ask, were you keeping the par levels during those long lines going around the blocks of people waiting? I don't want to forget this. Uh, mm -hmm. To the point where you're running out of food and are you making phone calls scrambling? Oh, yeah, or is yeah. the food truck just out of food for the day and that's it? We were all of the above. We were, um, and we had no, again, we had no idea what we were doing. And so, you know, we were making, we were already making mistakes. And the fact that we were very busy made that, you know, we were making even more mistakes as a result of that. So we were, um, yeah, we were running out of stuff. We were, you know, I remember very vividly running around, you know, Midtown Manhattan where we spent a lot of time. We like under, pretty quickly realized like there was like lunch business to be had in Midtown Manhattan. So we were running around to all the bodegas in Midtown Manhattan to try and find avocados. And like, you know, Dave and I would be running, running around Midtown, finding avocados and bringing them to the truck. Yeah. And guys making guacamole real quick and trying to keep up and then just selling out of food and calling it a day. And that's part of the hustle too. And I, you know, I say this talking to other guys with food trucks where they always say once they're out of food, they're out of food. And mm -hmm. I go, what are you talking about? You're out of food. You right. Still got right. Three in a hours restaurant, you just don't do that. Right. Sure. Like, so to me, it's unfamiliar. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And to run out of food is essentially just shutting down the business. And if you could figure out a way to continue, you know, getting more dough for your pizza or whatever it is shipped into you from somewhere. Yeah. I mean, this was part of the, part of the, you know, challenge in, in this model, um, I think is, is, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, what we found is that, you know, there was a lot of demand. People were, you know, it was a great way to launch the brand. People were very excited about Mexico and a lot of these other food truck brands, really difficult to to make money on them and that's partly because you know sales challenges like you just described and those challenges also you know exist in bad weather um i mean really bad weather keeping us from being out there on the streets parking issues police issues issues with other restaurants issues with other food trucks like you name it a lot of reasons for us to like not be selling food you guys know like we don't not open the restaurants right right barring like a huge pandemic or natural disaster or whatever. like we open those restaurants in any form we can and you know with the food truck there are all kinds of reasons that you you know that will cause you not to be open for business that day 
And it hits you on sort of both levels of the P&L because, you know, in a lot of cases, you've already got food that's been prepared. You've got people that are the team that's like ready to go even out there on the streets. They've spent time prepping the food, bringing the truck out, and then all of a sudden something happens. You have to call it a day. So anyway, go on and on about that forever, but it's a real tough business model that way. Um, we were talking a couple episodes back with Kat from Walters, and they have the food trucks cool. running. Mm-hmm. And we were kind of got, got on this subject when they were talking about doing like the Governor's Island events and stuff. Like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. We used to do those. I was going to ask if you. Oh yeah, yeah, those yeah. ones. Because she was saying it was like crazy. Oh, it was crazy. Yes, run out of stuff. Get yes. someone to deliver out to the island. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, we used to do those. Were great. We used to do all those festivals. I mean, that was part of the, you know, really fun thing and. Um, you know, about having the food truck was doing those events, and it was such a great brand building tool. Because you get so many eyes kind of stuck in one spot. Yeah. yeah. Would you still want to go back and do things like that? Oh, definitely. Yeah, we were actually planning on, so, you know, launch the business, as you guys mentioned, in 2010. So last year was our 10-year anniversary, and we had all these, like, plans for, for what we wanted to do as a brand for our 10-year anniversary or whatever. And one of those things was bringing back the truck. And we figured, like, you know, we're better operators now. You know, we understand it a little bit better. We could probably do some layer on some more catering and deliver digital delivery on top of it, and 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 just figure out a way to make it a, um, you know, a somewhat profitable business model. And then the world changed. But yes, we to answer the question, yes, we'd love to bring the the truck back in some form. I was just thinking about the logistical nightmares that Kat was explaining to us uh, about bringing the truck out to Walters. Luckily, there was a freezer space that somebody let us use. Yeah. We stacked all the hot dogs in it. Yeah, yeah, it was a cool community that way. Yeah, I mean, that's extremely tough to do. I mean, just thinking about it, the logistical nightmare versus the benefit that you get out of it, in my head, I'm just like, steer away from that. But at this point where you've now built a, a very large-scale business, yeah, we can figure those things out. That's yeah, a very I mean, small challenge. By the time we opened up restaurants, it was like, you know, I mean, it didn't happen quickly, but we kind of felt like, okay, you know, the, the trucks not good riddance, but we were ready to like, you know, we realized that operating restaurants was in a lot of ways easier. And we certainly had to figure out how to make the, the financial model work better. When, when, when was, uh, when did you get to the decision that you wanted to switch from the truck to the, to the restaurant? Pretty quickly. We opened up our first tiny little brick and mortar, um, on 7th Avenue between 29th and 30th in the city, uh, a year later in, in August of 2011. So, so that's it's, a, it's yeah, pretty that's, fast. So I mean, you know, if you think about the time, like we started working on it, I mean, it was it was all kind of happening very very fast. With opening that restaurant, did, that, did you keep the truck going? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we kept the, the truck, truck going, and restaurant. we got another truck. Okay. Um, that summer, that following summer of 2011, we got another truck, and we moved into a new commissary, and so we were sort of like you know growing in in a few different directions. And you um, didn't use the restaurant as a commissary, so you still had the separate. No, we didn't. We actually. At the time, because we had this functioning commissary, um, we we figured we'd get a smaller, like a smaller restaurant footprint with a very small okay, kitchen. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, the, yeah, so it kind of kind of resembled the operation of the food truck, but obviously in a brick and mortar space. Gotcha. In shifting from that, right now we see we did the five hundred thousand a year on the first truck. Cool, we could do this. We're crushing it. Let's expand. Is that the next rational thought? And let's get a brick and mortar. Yeah, it was it was a little bit. I mean, there was an appetite for for an excitement around growth, I think, and then there were, but there was also kind of like a, just a survival mode that kicked in right away. Like it was this sort of, and you guys know this because you know you've been you're in this world, but like 
pretty much immediately there was like excitement about growth and then just still and then just like sheer anxiety about like staying alive and doing what we need to do to expand the business in order to like not let it fizzle sure because your overhead costs then go up yeah exactly like and your loans things, yeah. that you take out or yeah, whatever all the, it is. All, the, all the things so it was like you know part of it was just like you know excitement about growing part of it was like okay we need to grow in order to like figure out a, a model here so how long did it take to actually develop that first real brick and mortar location that you had um, to build it out, yeah, it was quick. Uh, it was a small space, as I said, only like 450 square feet, and you know this was um, it wasn't a conversion, it wasn't a second generation, uh, but it was, but it was a pretty easy space to build out. So it was only like you know probably probably three months of of build out. You didn't have a bar program yet. We did not have a bar okay. program. This was it was just grab and go, tiny little mezzanine space for people to eat upstairs, but it was yeah all all quick service. We spoke to Rocco DeLeo in some of our earlier episode, and he is a restaurant architect, essentially, and mm-hmm. we really dove into the different textures that are used in restaurants cool. and how to create contrast and how to create the flow of people coming in and out. And I know, essentially, Mexico was supposed to be more of a quick casual jump in jump out get your food you were still sitting down at tables in this first location Mm -hmm. and how many things did you just realize out the gate when you built this place like oh we've got to change this or we've got to change this and you were kind of just oh tons almost gary veeing just get it out there and then we'll fix it as it goes oh tons i mean that was you know that was i mean in 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 every everything that we were doing it was it was sort of like you know building what do they say like building the plane you know as you're flying it and so we were very much in that mode um in the restaurant you know the concept was evolving too the the menu was evolving you know the 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 just the food was evolving the recipes were evolving and so you know as that happened yeah we were you know the kitchen operation was evolving the equipment needs were evolving the style of you know the service was was evolving and then eventually we went into full service with a bar but even before that, um, constant evolution, constant building the plane while we were flying it. A lot of the items I would suspect that were on that original location menu then were essentially an evolution of the truck. Because you have to give a little bit more onto a plate than what you're just handing somebody on a truck. Yeah. We have to make the plate look beautiful and make it look like it's worth, well, I mean, it was 2010, what, 14 bucks, 15, 16? Yep. It's funny to think back of inflation and how cheap prices were in restaurants, you know, along yep. with the rent and whatnot. So sure. how did you wind up scaling maybe something just like taco plates out there? Well, so that first evolution um, from, you know, truck to to primarily grab and go and things have evolved considerably more now that we're in like a full service environment where you're actually plating food and people are sitting down and you have cocktails and that kind of thing. But in that first evolution, it was... Um, I think the, the the big change was it was less like individual tacos and sliders. Like people were cool with like going up to the truck and just buying like one taco or whatever. So that was one thing is we like, I think we bundled things a little bit more, like, you know, sold things in sets of two or three tacos or sliders. The other change was um, we realized that we kind of had to broaden the menu to appeal to more people. And so, you know, we started doing things like grain bowls and salads rather than just tacos and sliders things like a limited menu like that kind of flies out of a out of a truck i think but it doesn't fly as much out of a brick and mortar restaurant you need a little bit more like variety in the menu to appeal to like more you know more types of people because you got to fill the seats 
Yeah, I mean, yep, exactly. You got to fill the seats. You got, you know, just do more volume. And that's something we struggle with all the time because, you know, we have a we have a split. I'm I run the front of the house. My partner runs the back house. Mm-hmm. And not so much now, but we used to struggle all the time. But how many things can we put on the menu? We want to try to keep it as simple as possible. Sure. You don't want to exclude, you know, one demographic or somebody else because you don't want to lose a table or something like that. So it becomes like a tricky. You know, the product mix is always a tricky thing. Well, right, absolutely. And for you, because you guys are barbecue, right? Right. And so that's an interesting one because obviously people are coming to you for this, like, comfort food and big, you know, plates of meat or whatever. But you need to have salads and other things as well. And so, like, the P-mix may not, you know, may not necessarily tell you that, but, you know, you need to do it. Well, that's where just eventually introduced the rice bowls for lunch and gave a quick different way for people to come in, get nice. out without Smart. feeling like they're bloated and have to yeah. go back to the computer and do work, right? Totally. We're so behind the trend on that, though. Like, now everybody, it seems like bowls are wildly executed. But yes. when we're talking about, you know, 10 years ago, there's very few places you can go in and get, like, a right yeah, outside yeah. of, like, an Asian cuisine or something sure. like that, you know? so Yeah. Starting with six items on the truck. That's kind of ish. I'm not gonna say it's easy to do, but it's easy to do in comparison to mm-hmm. what you were going to do in the restaurant itself. Yep. I mean, how big was that menu then? Well, so what? So our so we're modern. We're modern Mexican, you know, with these with influences from other places, but we're we're, we're modern Mexican, and so one of the advantages I think in our category is that we've like, um, not to compare us to Taco Bell, but it's almost the Taco Bell model where you like a you know a, a relatively small amount of skews can produce a lot of menu items. So we took, we actually didn't have to expand so much the number of like prep items or recipes or even things on the line so much. We just kind of expanded the way that we were using those items. So your quantity of prep went up heavily, but you didn't do that many different food items. Well, the opposite. The quantity of prep didn't go up that much at all because we were working with pretty much the same number of items on the line. Mm-hmm. We just brought in, you know, lettuce and brown rice, and then all of a sudden, you know, the, t- the three tacos and the three sliders became, you know, eight more rice bowls and salads, and you know, then we started doing a couple other things as well. Gotcha. So, it, how many times? I don't want to say how many times. The aesthetics of the original build out. How much did that shift over the course of time in that specific restaurant? Well, the aesthetics and the branding have evolved constantly over time. I mean, that's one of the things we're, um, you know, that we value a lot is just sort of like constant evolution and change. Um, and it doesn't mean we're, we're not changing the, you know, the core of who we are, but, you know, we're, we're constantly evolving the, the brand identity and the, you know, the way that we decorate the brand, so to speak. And so in that restaurant, things, um, you know, we evolved the look a little bit, but not a, not a ton. There wasn't a lot to, there wasn't a lot of, you know, space to, to, to do much. But it did evolve a lot when we opened up our first brick and mortar space, like, you know, our first full service brick and mortar space uh, a year and a half later. And then, you know, the, the, the visual identity, the interior design started to evolve quite a bit. So Dave comes to you and he goes, hey, I've got this crazy idea. We're going to expand this business even more. And I'm going to start making calls and I'm going to find funding. And then sure enough, he does find funding and you guys sell a little bit of equity, right? Mm-hmm. 25% to who? I don't know whether it was 25%. I can't remember exactly the, the, the details of the deal, but we, um, we spent like, you know, months or, you know, years, not quite years, but probably like a year and a half is sort of pounding the pavement, trying to raise money. 
and we cobbled together a handful of like great, great restaurant, you know, industry folks, investors. Um, but then it was we, but they were all like kind of participating in you know relatively small amounts, and so that was long story short, the round was led and filled out by this guy Sandy Bell, who um, started Ruby Tuesday and grew that for a long time, and has done all kinds of other amazing things in the in the food business world, you know, Blackberry Farm, Ruby's, several other concepts and businesses along the way. When Sandy came in here, though, also and having 40 years of experience, essentially, you know, if not more with Ruby Tuesday. Sure. How great is that to have as somebody to kind of lean on and say, oh, hey, check out our business, look at what we're doing and how can we tighten this up? You know, that way we can make a little bit of a better margin and find some streamlined efficiencies that maybe you may have missed considering this guy's been around forever and has seen it firsthand. For us, it was incredible. I mean, I think it's it's tricky for people because sometimes people, especially like in our world, when you in, in when you're dealing with chefs and that kind of thing, um, you know, egos get in the way, and you're you know not as open to bringing on what is definitely like you know a, a marriage partnership. Um, in our case, we were like, you know, we were pretty aware of painfully aware of like what we didn't know, and so yeah, we were really excited to have him come on. And work with us as a partner in helping you know continue to build this company and figure out how to be better operators and evolve the brand evolve the you know the, the culinary and the menu all of it it was very valuable was there like one single defining moment of something that maybe he told you that you picked up and you said oh man how did we not realize that uh it's gonna be hard to pinpoint one because there were so much so yeah but um I mean, I think, you know, we talked about food earlier and, um, and this, you know, and, and, and I probably was just channeling Sandy when I was saying that and, and, um, and making sure that the menu is, you know, diverse enough so that, you know, it's appealing to lots of different types of people. And so, you know, for me, as someone, this is the person who is like focusing on food and, and, and branding and marketing, um, in, you know, working with Sandy on those things, like that was, you know, those types of things were really you know, insightful. And, and probably, you know, I do a decent job of listening, but, you know, it's tough too. And you're, you've got your baby and your, your creative baby and someone's like, you know, trying to work with you on evolving it and giving you advice. And so at the time, I'm not sure I was, you know, not always stoked to hear about ideas, but, um, but, uh, but certainly in retrospect, it's, you know, it's always just, you know, that, that, that type of guidance that you need to like, you can't just have three barbecue tacos like it needs to be broader than that in order to appeal to more people is just you know invaluable i think that the realization or the ability to have the realization that you're maybe too close emotionally to something where you look at the decisions that are made and you can't almost accept somebody else's and i say this as you know my grandfather's a 90 year old guy pipe just burst in the house up here in new york he lives down in florida He's got to sell his house. He's house poor. Yeah. So every time he talks to me, I say, Gramps, this is super easy. I understand there's memories in there, but there's one way to solve this problem. Sure. It's to sell the house that you haven't spent any time in in three years. Right. And of course, he doesn't want to hear it. Right. But I'm making sure that, you know, I, I take some of the glove off a little bit and, yeah. and give it to him a few times. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. You know, anybody yeah. in this business. It's so violent. Well, anybody in this business, you know, really has to kind of realize that sometimes you're too close to seeing what's happening. Oh, you have to. I completely agree. 
I mean, we just talked uh, recently just about how you were giving a spend to just go out and do R&D because you can't do it all the time. Right. So you give your employee some cash to go with Smart. and say, hey, go check out the places and report back. Yeah, we gave Oh, them, that's awesome. We gave the managers, like, uh, you know, the ink card within a little expense. A small one. It's nothing crazy. They're not going to Vegas and, like, having a crazy weekend. But, yeah. That's ah, so smart. Try new places, come back. And, like, and have they, has it worked? Have they come back with good ideas? Yeah. I mean, this is the last six months or so. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, they got us out and say, like, oh, I saw, you know, X did this kind of thing with the plate. And actually, when we're designing the new restaurant, some of those ideas have come from that. R&D. That's awesome. That's like, really smart. Oh, they have, like, this kind of setup. This would help us execute a little bit better. You know, that kind of thing. That's cool. I might steal that one from you. <laughs> I've just seen so many. I've worked in a lot of places. I've seen so many owners just get locked down into their own place, and they forget what's going on outside. And then they essentially get what I call the dinosaur effect, where they're just locked in their way. They never change anything along the way. Yep. And then all the other places are starting to become the cool, trendy spots yep. because they tried new things. And this was all going on right under their noses, and they had no idea that the world was changing outside of them. Yep. And I think that's like the most dangerous thing in the restaurants. We get, we kind of more recently have been successful in building that kind of culture where we're like open to the staff having suggestions. I think before, not that we would like shun it or anything, but yep. I think before the, it just didn't hit where people were coming in with their ideas and saying, I saw this, I saw that. And right now, I feel like every week either our bartenders or our staff even will come in and say oh i was at this place this was pretty cool like what do you think about doing this but you know with like our spin and just appreciating they kind of get our culture Love it. of being able to come back and like well it's like it's it's, it's a cool new <laughs> new feature to have oh that's culture, awesome that's so. that's invaluable for your culture yeah. i think what's great what happened what was the next store that was opened up so after the, the first quick service that we, that we talked about on 7th Avenue and Sandy comes on, we take a step back, um, think about now that we actually have like some breathing room financially, we have, uh, we have a partner who knows you know, what he's doing as opposed to us um, and, uh, you know, and a partner. And so let's, you know, the three of us and the rest of the team, uh, to your point, Justin, like let's think about what we want this, you know, what we want this concept to become. And so the next restaurant we opened was on 40th between Broadway and 6th, and that was the first full-service restaurant with a, a bourbon, tequila, mezcal bar, um, and an expanded menu, and yeah, in full service, a quick, casual kind of full service. With putting in the full bar now, that's a whole new world that you haven't experienced yet. Uh, yeah. In some senses, at least, the, the putting it together, maybe not the drinking side. Yep. But <laughs> at that point... Is it recommended to you to just have somebody hired to put together the cocktail menu and put to? Oh no, we. I mean, program? I had enough. I had done enough. To your point, I had done enough. Of I hadn't been on that side of the bar, but I spent enough time on the other side of the bar as a guest um, and doing you know stuff at home that that myself and then along with um, you know our team uh, were able to like put together a program. And you, you just mentioned me- mezcal bar, which is se- different than saying a tequila bar or something like that, which I. Th- you see a lot of tequila bars. You don't see a lot of focus on mezcal. And I had written in my notes because I saw yeah. on your Instagram or uh, I don't know if it was Instagram or some other social media, but there, yeah. every once in a while there'd be a mezcal pop-up somewhere in there. Yeah, well, that shift happened actually over time. At first, it was primarily tequila with a little bit of mezcal. 
And then the more we like dove into that world of agave spirits and like understood mezcal, we're like, holy shit, like this is, I mean, there's no other spirit like it. I mean, I've just completely become obsessed with mezcal. And, and so we actually still sell a lot more tequila, but I'm trying to put over time, we put more and more emphasis on mezcal and trying to educate people on, on mezcal. And so we do all kinds of tastings and, um, you know, we do cocktails with them and tastings and stuff, you know, in the store and, and, and online and stuff. So yeah, it's. It's cool. I almost don't even think that it's an obsession with mezcal. I think you just have an obsession for smoke in general. <laughs> because every single section I look with everything you do, there's smoke involved here and there. Well, that's true. I, mean, I do like smoke. Ironically, though, we don't, we don't, you know, we actually, um, we, we have over the years smoked some things. Um, and, you know, there's some irony in that because at this point we actually, you know, the, the food has just evolved in, in, in different ways. And we actually, you know, very, do very little like traditional barbecue like we do. But yes, I love, I love playing with fire. Do you scotch as well or no? Uh, we do. We have a little bit. I can't, couldn't even tell you what we have because it's so, you know, we just don't, we just don't sell scotch. We, I, would, yeah. I would think the link between the peatiness and, you know, the scotch whiskey oh, versus the mezcal would be something that's right up your alley. Oh, for sure. Personally drinking. Oh, even. for sure. For sure. Like that might be a cool flight to do. Um, that's actually a great idea for like a full, we've done a bourbon to tequila flight, you know, there's a real cool link between bourbons and aged tequilas in the kind of, mm -hmm. you know, caramel flavor. Yep. Um, but I like that one a lot as well, doing like scotch and the peatiness and smokiness of, you know, relating that to mezcal. It's a cool idea. Tell me how now that you're situated, we have three current locations, right? Um, tell me how the pandemic really kind of hurt things as far as the momentum that you had. I mean, we're sitting right here in Stanford, Connecticut, where there is Mexico. Yeah. And I've been there multiple times. Yeah. And awesome. it was interesting even going there during the pandemic. There's clearly not many people out no. in different time periods. Uh, the summer did help get a couple more people going out during lunchtime. Mm -hmm. But I've sat outside on that patio now and I've had some guac and chips. I've had yep. a cerveza mm -hmm. and enjoyed the view there. And it wasn't crowded in that sense, but I know for a fact that, you know, this area, the rent is insane. Yeah. You're sitting here in the center of Harbor Point, yeah. you know, newly built, the sexy area of Stanford. Were the landlords essentially kind of helping to work with you a little bit on this? I, you're a fixture. They can't lose you. Yeah. So we, so we have, we have um, five locations, three in the city, one in Stanford, one in D.C., ah. Um, but if you looked on our website today, you probably saw three listed because the, we closed two of the three New York city stores okay. over the winter and consolidated to just our one nomad location. Gotcha. Um, and to answer your question, yeah, I mean, we had, you know, we had long conversations with, you know, a series of long conversations with all of our landlords and some of them went better than others. Um, in the case of the, the Stanford location, you know, that was, that was a, a good productive conversation. They were, um, you know, they were, they were helpful, very much helpful and helping us kind of like weather the storm of the first several months. Um, I think the question will be, you know, between that, those sort of like landlord concessions and PPP, would it, we've been able to like, you know, bridge the gap. I'm curious how you guys have thought about this. Um, the question will be, you know, once we get back to a more normal state of things, whether that's, you know, later this year, hopefully a lot closer to it, or, you know, in the next couple of years, like whether those leases at that point are still affordable. 
is in a case like Stanford, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a cheap area. And to, just to follow up on what you're saying, it really made us realize in the last year yeah. how different landlords can be from one to another. You almost don't think about it before. Sure. Like, landlords are landlords, sign a lease, pay the rent, you know, done and done. But now dealing with two different styles of landlord, one where, you know, his business is building buildings and retail spaces, et cetera, and, you know, trying to build and grow and, like, new, you know, like I was talking about the retail, the luxury yep. apartment buildings and stuff on a much higher scale. And then another location is more residential landlord that just kind of owns a lot of buildings. Yep. So their attitude and approach to business is, is wildly different. It's yep. like one guy's understand, I don't, I don't want to say doesn't understand, but one guy is, you know, this is his life, this is his business. The other mm-hmm. guy's basically owns real estate, right? Yep. And they have different outlooks. So working with them on the same thing is, is like, I had this conversation with him and it went yeah. one way. And you have the same conversation with a totally different direction. And it's, it's eye-opening to really pay attention to who you're making this. When you're opening a space and you're talking to the landlord, you have to really approach them. We spoke with Kyle about this. You're referencing your two different landlords, yeah, two different which landlords. have yeah. very different ideas. Different ideas, different business landscapes for in their own right. Yeah. And now we're saying, like, if we're going to go into another, I mean, our plan is to open several locations, you know, in the future as well. And we're really taking it into account when we go into these deals, you have to almost interview the landlord before and say like this this guy's your partner whoever it is you know he's going to be your partner going forward and if we didn't learn anything from this year is that that relationship is extremely important oh i couldn't agree more you know and we signed that new lease that we were talking about and one of the big differences was putting in a, a pandemic clause yeah which we luckily enough we didn't sign the lease before and then this happens so we're like we need to put this in yeah so we were able to negotiate something where you know Basically, it's if we're under an order where capacity is restricted or something like that, the rent scales down with the amount of capacity. So, you know, for a 50% capacity, the rent would reflect. Oh, that's great. You know, that that number. That's great. And it's all linked to, you know, a state order, executive order. So it's, you know, it's not random. You can't yeah. say like, oh, you know, we were only allowed. So if there's an order like there is now, and not just specific to COVID, anything. Yeah, you know, like, no, that's great. That's really smart. Um, so that so that kind of kicks in. We have that conversation with the other landlord, and it's like, oh, you talk. What is this? Yeah, no, the rent's the rent. You know, exactly. So those kind of things are we just realize are so important with going forward and yep. stuff like that. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Presuming that we get through, uh, you know, COVID and the way that we have to operate restaurants right now, and eventually things will, of course, get back to normal again yep. down the road somewhere. What maybe is the plan for Mexico expansion? Or, you know, this is a longer term idea that I'm asking you here. Not mm-hmm. necessarily, let's just get back on the horse first and just start operating again and get there and then take it from there. But where do you see maybe an expansion? Oh, well, no, eventually? we're I mean, we're actively looking at um, looking at sites now. Uh, we'd like to, you know, our, our plan pre-COVID is the same one that exists today, which is just to to expand in you know in a way that we feel is like kind of like slowly and organically and that means probably trying to get you know one to two restaurants a year open and we're looking at New York City still but it's just a it's a weird it, bit of a risky you know market right now um, it's a little harder to say yeah, I think Stanford by the summer is going to bounce back just like it did last summer we were actually up in sales like double digits last summer over the prior summer same yeah same yeah 
So I'm like optimistic about that. Yeah, it's great. Totally. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, you know, that was certainly not the case in New York City. So looking at DC, thinking about Boston, looking, you know, we we love it up here because my director of operations and myself are are both based here. Um, We like to be in the restaurants as much as possible. So yeah, we're, you know, just going to try and keep slowly, you know, growing the brand, growing the team. What what makes you target when you go outside of like our area, right? Because we know uh-huh. we know our area pretty well. If you're we've been local, you kind of know what New York City is. You know what Stanford is. How do you target the DC market or the Boston market? Like, what tells you that's where this concept would be successful? Yeah, we I guess a couple things. I mean, one we just looked at markets where there's some density. You know, that's for us. I mean, that's where we've like, that's where the concept started in New York, a very dense market. Mm-hmm. And so we know that that works with our, what we do. And, you know, that's usually good for, for everyone. But so we look for markets that have some density. And then, um, I mean, this isn't super sophisticated, but we just, so, you know, DC, for example, when we looked at opening up that location, as we looked at the market, drove around the market, spent more time in the market, eating, eating out, um, having drinks out, whatever. We just saw the, you know, kinds of people that, that we were seeing as guests in the in the New York City restaurants. So there's, you know, there's probably a lot, of, I mean, there's a lot of more sophisticated analytical decisions that go into it, but I mean, you know, those two are Base big ones. factors. Yeah. But, and then again, what's critical is that we can just be there. So like that, that defines the, the, the broad outline of like where we potentially go. Then have you given any thought in to whether or not I'm gonna I'm gonna use the word Main Street, uh-huh. but do we need to be on Main Street or be thought about like being off the beaten path a little bit where people might have to find you? But we you know. generally try and veer towards Main Street ish. Okay. Um, but you know, it's always I mean, you're definitely like pointing to like a delicate balance there that exists. I mean, we're definitely not you know, we're not like a destination restaurant. We're you know, more of like a neighborhood restaurant with, you know, accessible, delicious, you know, accessibly priced modern Mexican food. And so we're not like the, you know, new, crazy, cool, whatever that's, you know, that someone's going to drive out to the outskirts of Brooklyn for. So we can't be too far off Maine. Um, But we also don't want to be, you know, Maine on Maine is expensive. So we try and find, you know, just off Maine on Maine, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, absolutely. For years, you know, being behind the bar in Black Bear, which is a high volume, it was a college bar for the most part. Yeah. Uh, in White Plains on Main Street there, the rent was just getting astronomical. Yeah. And for what you were getting, it was like $25,000 a month. It was absurd. And just right across the intersection on now the less desired street because it had its turn and then mm-hmm. it lost its uh, dazzle, mm-hmm. the rent was half the price. Yeah. And I continually just kept saying, some smart guy's going to go in there with a concept on a half price rent area and it's only right around the corner walking distance and they're going to make a fortune and sure enough look at paul at pax romana now you know there's a building going in right across the way the rent's gone up significantly from where it was five years ago yeah and these things do tend to change so we're just in saying hey do you want to go on main street or do you want to go on just that side street you know it's right around the corner but you know close enough walking distance yeah i mean to me as you're building out an actual concept really where people are going to go to and they want to go there yeah, yeah. you could probably get away with being a little bit on the corner street and not yeah. necessarily right there paying the full rent yep yep agreed um and I, you know i i kind of guide you into asking where maybe you intend to go 
just based off of, I caught the article from the Washington Post that kind of tore apart Mexico where they said yeah. it's an identity crisis. Yeah. And it's funny to see something like that because, A, that's just one person writing an article. Yeah. Secondly, Italian doesn't really exist in New York as a, uh, a chain staple restaurant because we have such good Italian mom and pop joints, right? Yeah. So we don't see that up here. And I'm just wondering in what areas maybe you steer away from because the concept just doesn't work because maybe they've got something on their own end. Yeah, I mean, that was an interesting one because um, I, mean, I could delve into this one, but, um, but it was a, you know, I think we, we didn't fit the mold of what this journalist thought we should be, despite me being like very specific about what we, how we view ourselves, our brand, our food, which is not at all, you know, authentic barbecue like you guys do. Definitely not authentic Mexican, but this sort of like, you know, creative blend of, you know, of these various influences. And I talked a lot very openly about, you know, that and, and you know, how we prepare food and, you know, and, uh, and how it's different than a lot of authentic things. And so, but, I, but in that case, it just didn't fit what this guy thought it should be, I guess, based on the name, maybe. Um, I think, you know, where, I mean, it's never fun to get a review like that. And that was actually my first, probably of many experiences with, you know, just getting like kind of burned by a journalist. Um, but you know, that there's a big difference between like what these like journalists are writing and, and what like people and, you know, the average person is looking for in a restaurant. And so when we opened up our DC restaurant, it was kind of one of those classic cases of like all press, even bad press can be good press because and people loved it. I mean, if you just look at like the reviews on, you know, Yelp and other online reviews, like no one's, no one's like commenting about the nuances of of you know like the the styles of cooking or whether or not we're smoking a meat or whether or they just like the food because we're making you know good scratch food from fresh ingredients at the restaurant that's tastes delicious and big bold flavors and all the things and same thing with cocktails so you know i mean tansy i mean you make a very good point like you got to be cognizant of like where the concept is going to resonate and where it won't um but just in the case that you brought up like it's not you know, sometimes what the like, you know, journalists might write about in, you know, in, in the Washington Post is not indicative of whether the, the concept's going to resonate with, you know, people that actually eat out in a place like D.C. No, I, I fully agree. I think there's a huge disconnect between one person's view and a write up. Right. Like, right. I mean, if you poll 100 people around the area and if they've been to Mexico before and did you like it or did you not like it, I'm sure you get like a 50-50, right? Because not sure. every single place is set up for 50, every single 50. person. I'm just making a number that's fair <laughs> and that was 50-50. Yeah, of course. <laughs> well, in, in, in saying that too, I, though, I agree with you that I don't even think that bad press is negative press for the business. Press mm -hmm. is press. Yep. And the fact that they're coming out, they're coming out for a reason. You made some type of uh, footprint going in there, yep. and they said, we got to check this place out. It's big. It looks nice. Let's see what this is all about. So they sent somebody in and do a write-up. And that's what every single other person is going to do on the street, whether the write-up was great, whether it was not great. Sure. And to say that they don't know what they are, restaurants are all becoming just fusions anyway of different right. ideas. So who are you to say that there's an identity Completely. crisis? We're doing Completely. exactly what we wanted to do. Yeah. And, and it's successful in all the other spots. Totally. And there's such melding of... Food and the in the you know the history of of you know of cooking and in the culinary world, 
across the world, it's like it's it's a little crazy for someone to sort of like you know just to try and claim that something is not <laughs> in the right category or authentically this or authentically that. I agree. Yeah. Listen, you get reviews. Good ones or bad ones. A good one is nice, but it's you know nothing crazy. A bad one sucks, but also nothing crazy. The ones that are important is when you walk the floor on Friday, Saturday, hundred percent, and talk to the tables. Those Absolutely are the reviews agree. And that and that people saying it in the restaurant, people saying it, you know, Yelp tortures us as much as it tortures anyone else. But but that's also more important, you know, than right. what than what these major publications say. I totally agree with you. That's the stuff we listen to. So if I went into the restaurant tomorrow and sat down and I asked the waitress for Thomas Kelly's favorite mezcal, what's going to happen? Um, I think you've read our website about us. I appreciate that. I, it's always a very challenging question to answer with mezcal because it's constantly changing and there's so many great options. But... I would probably say today, uh, a Tospa Pachuga is one of my favorites that I'm that I'm drinking today. Um, not today, today, but these days. Tom's drunk. <laughs> <laughs> it's not too early, is it? It's Friday. <laughs> it's almost one o'clock. Uh, a, there's a Pachuga um, by a brand called Tospa, which is really delicious. And do you know about about Pachuga? I don't. Okay, well I'll tell you guys real quick because um, you're a bartender, so you'll appreciate this, but. Um, so I'm sure you know generally about how mezcal is made. Um, the difference when someone's making pachuga, when a, when a mezcalero is making pachuga, is they use, they fill like a, a basket above, the, um, above the, 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 the still, right? And they fill it with all kinds of stuff from around the property. So it can be like pine or herbs or whatever else. And then a lot of times in addition to that, they hang like a carcass of an animal. Um, all kinds of different stuff. They do like iguana, they use turkeys, chickens, whatever. So it's like super, I mean, bringing the kind of, kind of the concept of terroir to another level here. And so you soak up all that flavor. Interesting. And so it just brings like, just really, really like interesting complexity. A lot of times some sweetness, just like crazy funky flavors to mezcal. So this one by Tospa is awesome. All right. We're going to have to actually walk into Mexico and actually taste this at some point over the next weeks here. Cool. Uh, what's next as far as getting back open again? We're here in the summertime. Yep. Um, very much looking forward to the summertime. We are, you know, as you guys probably know, we're, we're sitting here in, um, you know, mid-February and we just, just a week ago, we're opening up in New York. So that's good. So we're starting to open up inside in New York very slowly and, and carefully. Uh, but, but that's good. And, and we're open in DC, open in Stanford and yeah, hopefully just, you know, continue to bring more people in the restaurant in a safe way. And by later this year, we're back to kind of a fun vibe and all the things that we, you know, we're used to doing a year ago. I'm excited for summer 21. Yeah. Agreed. Where, where can they find the website? Where can they find it on Instagram? I guess pretty much everyone just goes to Instagram at this point, right? Everyone goes to, yeah, just Google MacQ. It's all there. Just that. Just put Mexico in and it's going to show right yeah. up. Are they going to be able to find yours from there? Yep. Say no more. Yep. Because I wouldn't be able to tell you what my handle is. So. <laughs> <laughs> Waiting on Fries will release short form conversations with plenty of topics that are relatable to your restaurants and bars on Tuesdays. On Thursdays, hear more of what you just listened to from your favorite businesses and parts of the industry that you've yet to discover. This has been On the Record.